Bring It On is a public affairs program exploring the people, issues, and events affecting the African-American communities in South Central Indiana and beyond. Bring It On is a forum for the people, by the people, produced by an independent team of volunteers working at the studios of Community Radio WFHB in Bloomington, Indiana, and financially supported by listeners like you. Good evening, I'm Clarence Boone, and welcome to Bring It On, a multiple award-winning show in our 13th year. It is Indiana's only weekly community radio show committed to exploring the people, issues, and events impacting African Americans. And good evening, I'm Cornelius Wright. In today's broadcast, you'll also hear of Bring It On's latest achievement in broadcast journalism, all in the next hour during our broadcast. But first... Thriving Connections builds on the power of relationships to bring people together for change. A local guiding coalition provides the framework to increase the emotional and financial stability of participating families and reduce their use of welfare benefits. Just as importantly, Thriving Connections brings the experience of poverty into the hearts and minds of community members and leaders, taking us one step closer to a national commitment to end poverty. Thriving Connections captains and allies are matched by their talents and interests and are each asked to make an 18-month commitment. Everyone is expected to meet with his or her team at least once a month. In addition, captains are asked to attend the weekly community meeting. Children's programs and programming and dinner are provided during this time. It is a connection formed during these meetings with allies and other captains that builds respect and understanding, linking people together to end poverty one family at a time. And to tell us more about this unique program, we are thrilled to have Katie Thompson, a Thriving Connections coach from the Indiana South Central Community Action Program, and Asia Jester, a captain with the Thriving Connections Program. Um, Katie and Asia, welcome to Bring It On. Welcome, ladies. Hello. Thanks for having us. All right. Now, we talked a little bit before we went live, and we talked about the fact that, wow, this sounds like an incredible program. If it achieves, um, say, 50% of its stated goals, it's making a tremendous impact. And I and Cornelius were asking pretty direct questions about, you know, okay, who thought of this? Uh, where is this from? And, and so let's uh, start with Katie. Tell us a little bit about the history of uh, Thriving Connections. Um, so Thriving Connections has been in the community for about 10 years. Um, we actually have been called Thriving Connections for about four years. Um, then the time prior to that, we were actually known as Circles. Um, and Circles was actually a national initiative that used a lot of the same structures that um, Thriving Connections uses. Um, they were the ones who came up with the idea of, they called them leaders, we call them captains um, and allies. The idea of the team, um, the idea of the intentional friendship, working on goals, these are all things that we pulled um, from circles. So we were an official circle site for many years. Um, and then about four years we uh, four years ago, we decided to transition um, away from the national model and towards Thriving Connections. So we kept some stuff and we changed some stuff as well. Um, probably the biggest thing that we want to focus on um, is emotional growth, personal growth, um, and the role that emotional trauma can play in poverty and getting out of poverty. We were finding that um, a lot of the challenges that our folks were running into were challenges that couldn't just be addressed by go to school, get a job, go to school, get a job, but rather we were finding that these traumatic emotional experiences that had happened to folks um, were actually getting in the way of those achieving them achieving those goals. And so it was very important um, to address that so that folks could actually move forward with their lives. And how long has the program been here in Monroe County? Um, about 10 years, yeah. So we, we started about 10 years ago in Monroe County, um, yeah. And this was the same uh, time spent as the National Initiative? Um, the National Initiative is actually a little bit, um, it's a little bit older. It's been around for a little bit longer, okay. um, yeah. And, and the ideal, and I know everyone is different, so rather than say the, the profile of your typical uh, tell me the type of person you may see that is who is participating in this program. Sure. Um, the kind of folks that we work with are folks that are, um, they're very motivated to get out of poverty. Um, they might have tried a lot of other things and found that it didn't really work for them. Um, we have folks from all walks of life. We have folks um, all ages. We have people who, um, we have some young folks. We have a gentleman who just turned 20 all the way up to um, one of our senior members is 64. So we have a really big mm -hmm. age range. Um, but the one thing that all those folks have in common um, is that they're really ready to begin their journey out of poverty. Um, and they're ready 
ready to also make relationships and connect with people, that that's important to them is making those connections. And Asia, how did you hear about the program and what motivated you to get started? Well, I initially heard about the program um, serving on the SCAP Policy Council. Um, members of Thriving Connections came in to talk to us about um, their membership drive type of situation. And, well, it didn't take me long to feel like that was exactly where I belonged. Excellent. So, allies, captains, how do you recruit are there any special qualifications? And we'll get back to the captains a little bit later. But yeah, are there any special qualifications that that, um, that people need in order to be either an ally or a captain? Um, the most important qualification is just that you, you want to get connected and you want to make connections with folks. That's the most important qualification. Um, for allies, what we're looking for is um, folks that are just relatively stable resource-wise. You don't have to be rich. You don't have to be um, doing very well in that aspect. Um, you just sort of have to be a little bit stable. And the reason that we, we ask that is just because folks who are working their way out of poverty, a lot of times um, it can be very, very helpful to have um, allies and people connected to them that do have that stability, that that can really help um, with brainstorming, that can help with connecting resources, um, connecting folks together who might not share resource networks. So we're looking for, yeah, anyone can be an ally who is relatively stable and is interested in connecting and learning about um, what it's really like to live without enough resources in Bloomington. Age restrictions, are there any other restrictions such as felonies, the same old things that normally keep people back or are there anything like that involved? Um, there's no there's no age restrictions. Um, we generally find that folks that um, are very, very young a lot of times don't necessarily always have that stability um, to offer. We have lots and lots of different ways you can volunteer with Thriving Connections though. If you're interested, we have lots of service learners from IU that come and help us with our youth community. Um, we have programming. It's not just child care on our Thursday night meetings. We actually have programming for the youth. So we have um, social work and elementary ed um, work or student service learners that come in um, and, and work with our kiddos. So there's lots of different opportunities. There's no upper age limit. Um, we have a lot of retirees, folks who have a little bit more time and want to give back to their community. Um, in terms of, we do run background checks on anyone who comes to our, um, that, that comes to our meetings on a regular basis, but all we're checking for is um, violent crimes and crimes against children. So any other felonies are, that's, that's not relevant to what we're checking for. And a couple, couple follow-ups. Uh, must a person live in a residence, a home, an apartment, or can they live in a shelter and take take advantage of this program? Oh, that's a good question. Um, for folks, um, when we when we're recruiting for leaders, we do tend to um, want to find folks who aren't in active crisis. Um, we find that. Um, and in, in just knowing about sort of human psychology and the psychology of our basic needs, um, it's called the hierarchy of needs, that if your basic, your most basic needs, food, shelter, um, physical safety, transportation, clothing, if all that stuff isn't taken care of, it's very, very difficult to focus on anything higher than that. So um, when we recruit for, for captains, we generally do try to find folks who um, aren't in that active crisis just because the resources that we have are more um, helpful for folks who are a little bit more stable. And there are, say, social programs you can refer those people to to get out of crisis? Absolutely, absolutely. Okay, and, and, and follow-up to, to that, uh, we, we talk about this word poverty, and, and maybe in the minds of some, poverty conjures up so many different things, mm -hmm. from a financial uh, threshold to something more. Um, and probably if you ask 10 people, you may get <coughs> five or seven different answers, but... What definition of poverty do you use? And, um, and and then also, I've heard, just as a follow-up, I'll just ask this now, uh, I've heard that a lot of people are one paycheck away from what may be defined as poverty. So what is your definition of poverty? So the definition of poverty that we use at Thriving Connections is that poverty is about living without enough resources. Um, and so a lot of times when we hear resources, we just think money, but it's actually about much more than money. Um, in Thriving Connections, we actually identify lots of different resource areas. So we've got um, basic needs, we've got mental, we've got spiritual, we have... Um, 
mental, physical, spiritual. We've got we've got a lot of different um, emotional. We've got a lot of different areas, um, and you could be without enough resources in all of those areas or some of those areas. Um, but we like to define poverty as being not just about money because it's about more than just that. And one of the things that Thriving Connections is really focused on is we're focused on helping people to build their financial resources and meet their basic needs, absolutely. But we're also really interested in how can we use those relationships and those connections to help bolster those other resource areas, to help bolster people's um, mental, emotional, spiritual resources um, that they have. And Asia, let's hear about a typical Thursday evening and also what you've gotten out of the program so far. Well, a typical Thursday evening, we meet at 6 o'clock at St. Mark's, which is, um, so our meeting start, we have a meal together, which, you know, people say that when you eat with people, you feel a better connection with them. So I think that that has been a big part of us coming together. Um, After about an hour for the meal, the children are dismissed to the the staff that are there for them, um, they have programming. I know my children get really excited about some of the different things they're doing. Um, and for us, on a typical, well, we initially when I started the program, we were doing our class. So it was a lot of learning, and the learning was centered around poverty and the other issues that influence poverty, um, like she said, emotionally, physically. Um, socially and financially Um, and we did a pretty intense 20 week class um, exploring those topics once we finished that um, we're in the process of kind of just getting to know each other so we do a lot of community activities sometimes we have speakers come in from outside um, to talk to us about related topics or um, we're able to give our opinions on issues that affect our community a lot so we have some people who generally the people who are considered in poverty wouldn't have an opportunity to offer up their thoughts on certain issues um recently we did um a meeting about the transportation in bloomington which our demographic um utilizes the public transportation a lot so it was um, an opportunity for a lot of our members to feel like their voice is going to be heard um we end um, we start our meetings off with um, appreciate. No, we end with appreciations, where um, we're able to appreciate someone without them being able to respond. Respond. Um, it kind of just leaves you with a warm feeling in your heart. We start our meetings off with new and goods, which is an opportunity for everybody to um, give an example of something new and good that has happened to them in the last week. Awesome. Now, you mentioned the children. How many children normally on a, a Thursday evening would be at the program? And the reason I'm asking is for a selfish reason. As we <laughs> talked earlier before the show, you know, the Read 200 program is going on in the city of Bloomington and Monroe County. So we could have some folks come out there to read to the kids to make a win-win type situation. So I just want to kind of see how many children, the age groups that we're dealing with, so that we might be able to talk about something like that. That would that would be great. I would love that. Um, we usually have between uh, 25 and 35 kids, um, so it just depends on the evening. Um, on and a really busy night, we might have we might have 20 to 25 kids. Um, on a slower night, we might have five or ten. Um, it just really depends on which which families are able to to make it out that night. Um, our kids range in age from uh, one of the women who is actually in our in our class in our training um, actually gave birth at the very beginning of September. So we've got a little little tiny itty bitty um, running around. Well, she's not running yet, but um, we've got a little tiny itty bitty all the way up to um, we've got teenagers who are 14, 15, 16, um, and everything in between. So we've got a really good age range. Now I know we talked uh, a couple of weeks ago, and you mentioned how one family actually has a child that is now in the program. Would you mm-hmm. talk about that a little bit? Because that was just really inspirational. Sure. Um, so um, the the woman uh, who is in it, her name's, uh, her name's Tracy, and she came to the program about 10 years ago. So she's actually been in it almost since the beginning. Um, so when she started, her son would have been 
nine um, and he had a lot of challenges had a lot of behavioral challenges um, and in her involvement in the involvement in thriving connections and the time she was there she went back to Ivy Tech she got two different associates degrees um, and now she's working full-time at a doctor's office through IU Health um, she has a Habitat for Humanity house so she's a homeowner um, and in the time that um, her son Dante has been here um, he's just he's grown tremendously um, into this very self-aware very poised young man. Um, he talks very openly about his challenges. Um, he's just, he's hes a delight. I love him so much. Um, and he, um, yeah, he was in our class as well. He was in our, our class and he's very, very proud to call himself a second generation captain. So, yeah. Raising the awareness of poverty in the community and ending poverty. One of the, uh, the bold goals over overarching goals. Uh, do you see yourself breaking generational patterns? through this program? And if so, what examples can you share? Um, well, that's that generational poverty is huge. And we actually use um, what's called the two generation model, um, because what we find is that generational poverty can be so, so difficult to break. It's a lot of times those interventions that um, when you're engaging with the, the parents in that generation, um, a lot of times the real change that you see actually comes with the kids um, that are that are the, the kids actually do do much better. Um, and so the example that I gave with Tracy and Dante is probably one of our one of our best examples um, of, of parents who have gone through and um, their, their kids have, have done much better as a result. Um, another one of our families, uh, she's very, very proud that um, she has three daughters um, and two of them own their own homes. And she's very, very, very proud of that. So she, she likes to tell that story a lot. Tracy was a successful participant in it. And did you assist her with career counseling and uh, helping her with job interviews, or was that just a skill set that she just picked up? Um, those are all things that we try to, if we can't provide them directly in Thriving Connections, we try to <coughs> connect people to those. Um, mm -hmm. Work One is a place where we go a lot, but I know for Tracy in particular, um, one of her allies actually helped her to navigate the Ivy Tech experience. She was talking about how she was sort of going back and forth with someone who was having a lot of challenges communicating, and she actually went to an in-person meeting, and that person and um, her ally actually went with her and was able to um, support her in that meeting and talk to her and, and kind of get, get what she wanted. Um, so allies are definitely a big part of that. They lend their expertise in sort of formal and informal ways. Um, sometimes they're able to impart that job coaching or those concrete skills. And other times they just act as cheerleaders, um, not just, but they're there for support. They're there to go places with you if you need to. They're there to brainstorm when you run into trouble. They're there in an emergency. Um, so they, they provide this real mix of kind of concrete and more kind of abs abstract or kind of warm fuzzy. Now speaking of the allies, how do you match allies and captains? And then after you answer, the answer that, I'd like to kind of go to Asia and ask her the relationship between captains and allies, how that works. Sure. Um, so one of the most important things is that we <laughs> want our captains to be um, to get the allies that they feel will be best for them. Um, so what we do is when we have the whole pool of new allies, we actually go through a process that we call speed dating. And so what they do is um, the captains come up with their own questions that they then ask the allies and they go around and um, the captains stay in one table and then the allies will <clears throat> will switch places with them. Um, and these can be questions from anything from like, do you like video games to um, are, you, are you a Christian? For some people that's very important. Um, one of the questions we've had in the past is, are you comfortable working with someone who's been incarcerated? Um, so the captains get to ask whatever questions they want to ask to try to suss out who the allies are and who would be their best fit. And then what they do is they write down their top seven choices. Um, and then as um, staff and then with the guiding coalition as well, we actually take the piece of paper and cut them up and lay them out on the ground and try to move allies to different different captains to form the teams. Um, and then we get input from our guiding coalition as well. So how many uh how many captains does one ally have? Um, so it's actually, it's a little bit, it's how many allies does one captain have? Yeah, so that's a great question. I'm glad you asked that. Um, a team consists of one captain to three to four allies. So it's actually a one-to-many kind of situation, which is why we're we're pulling so hard to, to find these allies. Um, we've got 10 captains right now, so that means we're looking uh, between 30 and 40 allies. Um, 
So it's it, it helps to kind of um, diversify as well because we could have one ca- one ally who maybe is really really good at job stuff or money stuff, and then one ally who maybe um, has connections to let's say the school system if the uh, captain has kids and has concerns about their kids. Um, we can we can have kind of different. They can play different roles, and then they can also support each other. So, so Asia, let's hear a little bit about your allies. Uh, what drew you to them? How it's been working so far, and 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 recommending this program for others that might be in a situation like you were a while ago. Well, I actually right now I haven't been matched with allies. I'm kind of involved in this search for um, allies. We finished the class, but I have found um, that in this interim period, I've been supported immensely by the entire community, and that's what makes it so wonderful. Um, some some of the allies who are still around and and have been matched and and aren't my ally per se have been very influential and helpful and even just encouragement and conversation um one of the best things i take away from the program is the feel of community and i would even go further than community and say it's almost like family i do live here in bloomington i have five children and I don't have any family here. So um, one example of how Thriving Connections has helped me is like I need. I felt that I needed um, reinforcement in a situation I was dealing with. And I was actually able to call and have someone, well, actually the director, is that a role? Coordinator. A coordinator um, attend a, a, what was for me a very important me- meeting Um I'm usually able to communicate for myself well, but her support in being there um, just gave me what I needed to get through the situation. Um, what was your other question? I'm sorry. Well, basically, um, how, how has it helped you so far, and would you recommend this? How would you recommend to people that may be a little leery of joining? Um, what would you say to them? Well, I'm always... Um, to, to people that I know in the community who I feel would be a, a perfect match, I'm always telling them even now that when we have our next class, I'm going to make sure that you're there. Um, the sense of community and support, I mean, those are the biggest two things for me. Um, and 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 when you see that void being filled in your life and then you see other people who have that void, it's like, oh, my God, you need to be here with me. And, that, and that's kind of how I leave every meeting. Like, I suffer from some anxiety. And sometimes going to Thriving Connections on Thursday is the only time that I leave the house. <laughs> so, I mean, and that, and that says a lot. I mean, it does. I want to jump in uh, right now for those who just tuned in to Bring It On. Uh, we're having a, a very wonderful, insightful program uh, this evening. And we're having a conversation with... Uh, Katie Thompson, who is a Thriving Connections coach, and Aja Jester, who is a captain with Thriving Connections. And this program is run from the Indiana South Central Community Action Program. We have a couple minutes left, and I, uh, Katie and, and Aja, I want to both give you an opportunity to recruit. Uh, we've talked a little bit about the philosophy, the program function and all. Now I want to leave the remaining time for you two ladies to tell us uh, or to share with our listeners how they can get active and, and why they need to get active with this. Okay. Um, well, we definitely, we need allies. Um, we've got 10 recruited so far, and as you heard, we need 30 to 40. So we definitely um, are on our way, but we need more. Um, we're having an event tomorrow night. Um, that's Tuesday, May 1st. It'll be from 6 to 7 p.m. We're having an uh, dessert and information nights. So you can come and get some tasty treats, learn a little bit more about Thriving Connections. Um, that's from 6 to 7 p.m. and it's at the South Central Community Action Program office, which is at 1500 West 15th Street, and that'll be from 6 to 7 p.m. tomorrow night. Um, if you can't make that, I know it's kind of short notice, um, you're also welcome, everyone's welcome to drop in to one of our weekly community meetings. Um, we meet from 6 to 8 p.m. on Thursday nights at St. Mark's United Methodist Church which is off of the bypass, kind of behind the Best Buy. Um, We share a meal together. We share programming. It's a really great way to just jump in, meet the community, get the vibe. Um, Asia talked about 
how she feels when she leaves the meetings. And it's kind of, you really kind of can't describe it until you've, you've been there. The, the vibe that, that it gives you, you just, you just feel really, really good being connected with folks. Um, if anyone is interested and for whatever reason can't make it to either of those um, or just wants some more information before they come out, um, feel free to contact me. Um, my email is k. Thompson, T-H-O-M-P-S-O-N, at I-N-S-C-C-A-P dot org. You can also give me a call at 812-339-3447, extension 521. Um, we need allies. Please come out and, and check us out, um, just even just to see what we're all about. We'd love to have you. And Asia, the last word. Well... I, for one, would like to encourage members of the African-American community to come out. Um, Our community is very diverse, and we'd like to see some of that and and feel that um, Bloomington has a lot to offer from a lot of different people. And it's, I mean, I guarantee that if nothing else, you'll leave there feeling better than you did when you came. and if you feel like you have something to give to the community and you don't know exactly where to put those resources, I think this would be the perfect place for you. Well, we want to thank Thriving Connections Coach Katherine Thompson, Katie Thompson, <laughs> and Asia Jester for joining us this evening to tell us more about this unique program. For more information, visit www.insccap.org pages slash Thriving Connections or call Katie Thompson at area code 812-339-3447, extension 521. Or you can contact her once again at K Thompson, that's K-T-H-O-M-P-S-O-N, at I-N-S-C-C-A-P dot O-R-G. And um, I did not get a chance to ask this, but is there a graduation ceremony at the end of the program? Oh, there was. Um, so our captains actually graduated back in <clears throat> September. Um, we had a wonderful, we had a wonderful ceremony. When you said that, Asia and I both just <laughs> looked at each other with a big smile. Um, it was all nautical themed because we have our, our captains are sailing their own ship. Um, right. It was it was fantastic. It was a really great ceremony. All the captains got to get up and say a little something. We presented them with a certificate and a T-shirt. Um, it was just a really great time, and we had a giant cake. So. All right, I just had to squeeze that one one question in, and thank you, ladies, for joining us tonight. Uh, Bring It On has an open submission policy, so if you have an idea for this program, let's hear it. Send an email to our volunteer staff. The address is bringingon at wfhb.org. We want to make sure we share everything and anything affecting the African-American community with our listening audience in Bloomington and beyond. The email address, once again, is bringingon at wfhb.org. To keep up with local news and find out what's happening behind the scenes at WFHB, You're invited to like the WFHP Facebook page. Go to Facebook.com and search for WFHB. Or you can always visit the WFHB News website at WFHB.org slash news. Support for WFHB comes from Limestone Post, an independent online magazine covering Bloomington and the surrounding areas. In-depth stories about the arts, environment, social issues, and more. You can discover Limestone Post articles and learn more about the upcoming print edition, a commemorative art magazine dedicated to local history and a sense of place, at limestonepost.com. Writers with a voice, photographers with a vision. And from the 50 Plus Expo, Wednesday, May 9th at Twin Lakes Recreation Center from 3 to 6 p.m. Showcasing organizations whose products and services are geared towards baby boomers, seniors, caregivers, friends, and family. The event includes a variety of exhibits, entertainment, activity clubs, as well as health screenings by local healthcare professionals. 
For more information, contact Bill Ream at 812-349-3748 or at Ream, W-R-E-A-M-W at bloomington.in.gov. At the top of the hour, you heard us announce that Bring It On was the recipient of yet another Excellence Award, this time for an outstanding broadcast aired in 2017. As producer for this show, it is always an honor to have the Society of Professional Journalists bestow these distinctions on this show and the team that pulls it all together and the station that permits us a platform to air our best work. A second place award under the Best Radio Public Affairs Division was presented to us for a broadcast that aired on August 28th of 2017. The particular show that garnered us this recognition was an historical perspective of Confederate monuments and a national debate. It featured bringing on uh, co-anchors William Hosea and the gentleman seated to my left, Cornelius Wright, and bringing on contributor Dr. Amrita Myers, who is also an IU Ruth N. Hall's associate professor with the Departments of History and Gender Studies. Our board engineer for that evening was Jim Thrasher. It is, it is our pleasure to re-air that broadcast for you at this time. Please enjoy. In a recent New York Times opinion editor, Foner, he states that President Donald Trump recently lamented that the removal of Confederate statues tears apart the history and culture of our great country. When Mr. Trump identifies statues commemorating Confederate leaders as essential parts of our history and culture, he is honoring that dark period. Like all monuments, these statues say a lot more about the time they were erected than the historical era they evoke. The great waves of Confederate monument building took place in the 1890s, as the Confederacy was coming to be idealized as the so-called lost cause and the Jim Crow system was being fastened upon the South and in the 1920s, the height of black disenfranchisement, segregation and lynching. The statues were part of the legitimation of this racist regime and of an exclusionary definition of America. We've invited Bring It On contributor and anchor Amrita Myers, who is a Ruth N. Hall's associate professor in the IU Department of History and Gender Studies to share her perspective on the history and heated debates surrounding these Confederate monuments. Amrita, are you there? I certainly am. Well, welcome back to Bring It On. Welcome, we Amrita. You. Yes. We miss you, and it's good to hear from you. Indeed. It, it is great to be back on. Yeah, I've been following you on Facebook, and I think you're enjoying Atlanta a little bit too much. <laughs> um, I've definitely been settling in and uh, exploring the city. Uh, it's um, It's been really great. It's hard to believe I've been here seven weeks today. It's been flying by. Yeah, William and I were kind of talking. We said, um, we wonder if she's going to be putting her house up for sale. Is she coming back? <laughs> <laughs> Everyone keeps saying that to me. I'm like, look, I'm just here for a year. i got to uh, write this book. I think she's going to leave be, it up I'll to I'll be the... back there soon enough. You'll be wishing, oh, man, I wish you'd Stayed away. <laughs> <laughs> She's going to leave it up to the dog, Cornelius. All right. Anyhow, um, Dr. Myers, so we're going to talk about the history and the legacy of Confederate statues. So let's try and take it back to the beginning, and then I'll, I'll, I'll let you take it over. But my question is, um, I have read uh, that there are anywhere from 700 to 1,000 different monuments and statues erected in honor of Confederate uh, soldiers and, and Confederate leaders. Now, no other country honors the losers uh, like we do. I mean, Hitler banned the swastika. It's, it's even illegal to give that ridiculous uh, uh, high sign or yes. that salute that they do. So why is it that this country um, has somehow gotten to the point where, where we honor people who are actually traitors in history? Mm, you've you've really taken some of what I was already planning to say right right from my from my mouth and my and my mind. Um, I think that part of the the issue that we have going on here is um, this battle over history and memory. Right, um, you're absolutely right that no other country uh, honors the losers. I had been thinking to myself, what would it be like to be in a South Africa surrounded by monuments to apartheid? 
um, or in Russia to monuments of the death camps of Stalin. Uh, when you go to Germany and Poland, there are absolutely um, concentration camps that you can go visit, but they're not memorials glorifying the Nazis. They are extremely solemn structures that are supposed to make you, you know, realize that we can never let something like this happen again. So it's not glorifying the Nazis, it's commemorating the six million Jewish dead um, during during the Holocaust. So I think that this battle over over history and memory and and honestly i think also the the problems that we keep having with issues over how people interpret the first amendment is really what we have going on in, in this country it's um i think that there is a way i mean i'm a historian right and i'm a historian of the 19th century of slavery of black women of the south this is what I do. And I mean, as a historian, I would be the first person to say that we can't erase our history because the danger therein lies that we will not remember it and we will repeat it, although sadly it seems like that's happening anyway in some ways. But I think that there is a way to do this without honoring or glorifying racism or hatred or the Confederacy, because as you said, that's actually honoring treason and traitors. So how do, how do we do this? So, I mean, I think that there are a few different things that we could possibly do. Um, for example, if you go to Louisville, Kentucky, they've been having a pretty raging debate over a Confederate war monument that is, literally was smacked up in the heart of University of Louisville's campus. And people there led the charge to have that monument removed from L's campus because it was a daily um, slap in the face of African-American students and faculty and staff and citizens of Louisville who were black who were really offended. Um, and as, as people said, Kentucky was supposed to be a quote-unquote neutral state, but it was, we you know, a slave state. That memorial has been removed from U of L's property where it has stood since the 1890s. Um, as you said, that's when most of these were erected, you know, as Plessy versus Ferguson was heating up, segregation was becoming the law of the land. Now, no one said to destroy the monument. What, it was, what was done to it is that it was taken to a Confederate graveyard, a Confederate cemetery, and re-erected there, as far as I know. So there, there are things that can be done, right, that things can be moved to appropriate places. You could also um, erect new memorials and new monuments honoring those who died as a result of slavery and American genocide, right? You could have anti-lynching memorials. Um, you could have memorials that are dedicated to honoring abolitionists, underground railroad workers. You could have memorials to people like Harriet Tubman, Sojourner Truth, and Ida B. Wells, instead of memorials to people like Nathan Bedford Forrest, who still has several parks and monuments named for him in Memphis, which is a you know, very, very heavily African-American city, and it's incredibly offensive for those who don't know. Nathan Bedford Forrest was not only a Confederate um, officer, he was the founder of the original Ku Klux Klan. So can you imagine, in a, in a city as black as Memphis, to have all of these monuments and parks dedicated to a man who created an institution, an organization dedicated to wiping out Catholics, Jews, African Americans, anybody, really. <laughs> Catholics, let's not forget them. So... I mean, I think that we can replace some of these uh, memorials. I think we can move some of them to more appropriate locations. We could certainly also take them to museums, where they could then be interpreted with proper explanatory documents explaining when they were created and for what purpose, and, and what, you know, in order to make sure that we understand you know, the history that we've come out of and how to not relive that sort of legacy. Now, I think there's many things that we can do. You, you mentioned museums, and, and that's one of the things when I've spoken mm -hmm. to people that, you know, they, and even President Trump, as he mentioned, that this is going to take away a part of our history and our, our culture. To me, it seems that it's just the obvious place for these would be a museum. It's, and exactly like you stated, you mentioned some of the other statues that could be erected. And, and, and as I got to thinking, the one thing that's a true fact is all men are fallible. So in my mind, I'm trying to think, should we even erect monuments for any man, period, or should everything be put in a museum in a historical context? Well, I think that public monuments and memorials can educate. If you go to Washington, D.C., I think the Vietnam Memorial is a beautiful example of that. 
it's not that it's a monument to any one person, but it's a beautiful symbol no. with all of the names of the dead and the missing. I agree. And I was speaking of right? personal monuments. But, I mean, the, I think that there's a way to create memorials as opposed to monuments. And I think there's a difference between the two, and you're right. I think that we have to be really careful what we choose to build because it suggests that that's what we are honoring. Are we honoring treason? Are we honoring hatred? Are we honoring that? That's why, to me, when people talk about the battle flag of the Confederacy and that it's heritage, not hate, I'm very quick to correct them that it's actually a heritage of hate because that flag was not brought back out and resurrected until the ninth, until after the 1954 Brown versus Board decision went, you know, in favor of desegregation. As the civil rights movement heated up, that flag was brought out in order to terrorize, intimidate, you know, African American people who were fighting for their rights. So I think that we have to be really, really careful. Do we, you know, do we take everything down? No. But I think museums are where most of these things belong. I think Confederate graveyards you could put things in. But I would love to see us actually do a better job of putting up memorials to honor, you know, to honor the dead and to, and to remember sort of, you know, the legacy that we've been left. I mean, why not more memorials to Amistad, right, that we, like we have in New Haven, and, and fewer to men like Jefferson. Like you said, all men are fallible. How about more statues to women like Sally Hemings and less to Jefferson, right? That, that we need to see both sides of the story, that if we're going to be really fair about this. Um, and so I think it's, it's really contentious, and I understand why it's contentious, but I also think that um, it's incredibly offensive to leave things the way they are. Um, I know that if you go to Charleston, South Carolina, you walk in front of the Citadel and the statue of John C. Calhoun is still there. It's regularly defaced with graffiti, people throw eggs at it, all kinds of stuff, but they will not take that statue down. And yet, on the other side of downtown in the same city is a very new, beautiful memorial to who? Denmark Vesey, who yeah. led one of the largest yeah. attempted uprisings of slaves and, and free blacks in South Carolina's history um, in 18, 19, 18, 20. And so I think it's absolutely, in some ways, kind of uh, head, sort of head-shaking and weird that you have Calhoun and Denmark Vesey being sort of honored in the same city. I would like to see Calhoun's statue come down. He was a secessionist. He had been for the last 30 years of his life before he died. But maybe it would be better to put them near each other and have a conversation about our history, as opposed to taking down one or both. Yeah, as as far as you can determine, um, when you hear these uh, <clears throat> young white males or men mm. uh, claim that this is a part of their heritage, mm. how what do you think they mean by that? I mean, what did they inherit, or or is right. it just is it just a a an excuse for them to to do what an excuse to hate? But I think that, unfortunately, many people's inheritance has been hatred. That's a good and I point. Think that, I, I think that that is, that there are people, not just in the South, let's be clear, across the country, who hold on to a history and a heritage of hate and a legacy of hate. They, um, are, they are terrified by the new world they see being created around them. They're incredibly upset about the fact that white supremacy and white privilege and white male privilege is under attack, that we're talking about, you know, egalitarianism, um, and, and that we're talking about a society where in another 20 to 30 years, the majority of the population will no longer be white, right? That they are, yeah. that they're not only looking around at the world at them and terrified of the fact that they're going to have to compete on a more equal playing level instead of just having things handed to them or not done to them because of their race and color. And they're also looking at the past, and they're once again hankering for that lost cause. They've romanticized, right, this history of slavery and the Confederacy, and they've taken it upon themselves to say, gosh, if we could just go back to that time, then everything would be all right, right? We, we, if we just get rid of... Muslims, if we get rid of, you know, free blacks, 
if we put women back into a certain position in the household and in politics and in the economy, if we put all gay and lesbian people back in the closet or subject them to electroshock therapy to quote-unquote fix them, if we do all of these things and put ourselves back in charge, not only will all be right with the world, but you know, things will, I mean, it'll just be more comfortable, right? I mean, when you have a group that has been used to leading things in this nation, at least, starting from colonization for 400 years, and they're now looking at a scenario where they're going to have to compete for leadership instead of simply being handed it, it's not really a surprise that they're going back to the period of American history that saw them with all the chips, all the power, all the wealth, all the cookies, all the toys. Got another question for you. We're going to go in a slightly different direction. After Charlottesville, one of your posts mm -hmm. on Facebook, you mentioned how, one, you were thankful to see the reaction of how a lot of the white folks were reacting because of Charlottesville. But on the other hand, what took you so long? How have some of the <laughs> comments that you've received from that statement, how, how have those been? So they've been uh, varying across the board. What I find... You know, what I find interesting is that the people who generally tend to write in are those who had already been conscious, already had been woken up, right? When we talk about people being woke or conscious, they were already uh, white men and women who had been, um, you know, openly allies. Um, and so it's less sort of surprising to hear them say, well, you know, I don't, I don't, like for them, they, this wasn't a wake-up call. But my, my, my post was really to those people who were sort of newly speaking out. Maybe they had always felt this way inside, but they had been too scared to. Um, and what a number of people who wrote in said was that they thought that some people had sort of lulled themselves into a sort of false sense of complacency, like it's really not that bad, and that the sight of hundreds of young white men you know, throwing up the Sieg Heil, you know, Nazi salute and screaming, Jews will not replace us, and, and people actually being killed, you know, people being run over um, and murdered, was just so shocking that it took, it was so, it, it took people back decades or centuries and made them think, where are we living? Many of us have been living in that America for a long time. Many of us you know, many people were slapped into consciousness after what happened to Trayvon Martin and certainly after what happened to Michael Brown and Ferguson. You know, um, people have been awake even longer than that. But yeah. I think that according to that Facebook post, some people were like, we never thought it would get this bad. And now we realize, especially one friend said something really interesting to me. She said, you know, I had always told myself that the younger generation were getting it right, that this was dying out. And then the sight of all of those primarily young men yeah. Marching across the University of Virginia campus, <clears throat> screaming those slurs, horrified her to no end. But there are still some. There, you can look on that post. There's, there's a couple of people who rode in and, um, you know, were pretty uh, vocally, defiantly proud of being Trump supporters and said that, you know, that uh, the 45th president is not a racist, that... Um, you know, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. They didn't actually respond to my actual question, which was, why are you now vocal against racism? But instead, they chose to take this moment to, like, defend themselves and, and, the, and the president. Well, it, it's at some level, it seems like people are being emboldened on both sides of the argument. Yes. Yeah. You know, you take yeah. somebody uh, uh, like Dylan Roof, raise the consciousness uh, uh, yes. of everyone about the effects of the Confederate flag to the point where you even had Republicans uh, who were initially against removing the flag. All of a sudden they came out in favor of it. And then Charlottesville probably escalated or even uh, hastened the movement to remove Confederate statues uh, around the country. And of course the tragedy is that people lost their lives in both incidents. Yes. But but still, it kind of put those issues on the map. That's what often has to happen, right, William? Yeah, it, absolutely. You look at human history, not just American history. It seems that until people die, the majority sits in apathy, right? They're just silently compliant. They're they're sticking their heads in the sand. They're hoping it goes away because they don't want to have to risk anything. They don't want to have to stand up and and take. A <clears throat> they don't want to have to say anything or stick out their necks. But then when when people start losing their lives, and I mean, I hate to be cynical, but when white people start losing their lives, people start to really speak up. 
And I'm not saying that Charlottesville wouldn't have been horrifying regardless, but I do think that there's a, that there's a small role to, to, you know, that was played by the fact that Heidi Heyer, the woman who was killed, was white. Would as many people have been as horrified, as many white people have been as horrified and, and as willing to stand up and start demanding change if Heidi hadn't been white? And I mean, God bless her and her legacy. She was a true ally. Her mom is doing incredible work around the country speaking against hate and speaking in favor of tolerance and, and, and racial justice. I admire her greatly for doing this when she's just had to bury her daughter. But I have to wonder, given what I know about American history, when those civil rights workers went missing in Mississippi, would anybody have cared if it was just one civil rights worker you know, who was black as opposed to three of them, two of whom were white. Indeed. You know, I, I read recently, and I can't remember the state, that the Sons of the Confederacy were actually going to court to make sure that some of these monuments were not removed. It was from a university. Um, and I don't know if that's happened over other parts of the country. What do you think will happen with cases like that where they actually are going to court to keep some of these monuments in place? But that is exactly what happened in Louisville. There was a two-year battle that raged, and um, it was actually started by um, Dr. Ricky L. Jones, who's the chair of the Pan-African Studies Department at the University of Louisville. He actually initiated having that statue removed from the University of Louisville's campus, because as a black man and one of the few black faculty at UofL and as chair of the Black Studies Department, he was personally offended by having to drive past this statue every day. And it became a citywide movement, but there were people in opposition who actually went to court to have that, you know, to have injunctions put up, to have the statue remain where it was. There were people who were on city council. There were police officers, firefighters, veterans. I mean, it was, it was a mass, you know, it became a really, really big case with people on both sides, you know, arguing for or against moving the statue, ultimately it was seen as not being appropriate on U of L's land, and that it needed to be moved to a more appropriate place. Uh, either, you know, and as Dr. Jones put it when he was interviewed for uh, one last time about it, he said, "I don't care where it goes, someone's basement or a Confederate graveyard. But what I don't want is to see it on University of Louisville's property." Yeah, you know, some of the other. Uh states that have removed uh their statues uh there was one in texas i think uh uh florida had several cities that are removing uh confederate statues gainesville daytona beach peters st petersburg orlando but what i wanted to ask you was uh there they are discussing what to do about the the monument in stone mountain georgia is that mm -hmm. you know? That's just up the road from where I am right now. Yeah, no, it might be why you were that why you're down there in Georgia to deal with this situation. <laughs> so, so do do you have an update on on that issue? I actually don't. Um, it's been pretty quiet around here uh -huh. about that particular. Like in Atlanta proper, people are heated about what's been going on around the country and and what happened in Charlottesville. I mean, since what happened in Charlottesville, in the space of eight days there were three massive protest marches in atlanta you know supporting the victims of charlottesville and standing up for racial solidarity and justice <clears throat> and what was amazing about those marches is that they were incredibly diverse um you know people of all different backgrounds and ages yeah. marching together I, I was really it was actually very encouraging for me as a newcomer here to see that um, but sir, I don't, I haven't actually heard very much in the news at all about what's happening at Stone Mountain. What I've been hearing much more about is what's been happening in Memphis over the Nathan Bedford Forest Park and statue. Mm -hmm. You know what's, that, that has been a really interesting situation because they, the people who wanted that park renamed and the statue taken down won the case. The city agreed to rename the park and remove that statue. They were on board in favor after years of cases and arguments and whatnot. And after they made that decision, do you know that the state of Tennessee came in and said, you can't do that, it's illegal, you have to leave it the way it is? Well, <laughs> was that the end of it? The 
state overruled the, uh, uh, the municipal government of, of Memphis and said you have to keep the park and the statue the way it is. So is, is that so, the end of the situation? Well, it's not the end of the decision. People are continuing to fight it, but they're going to have to literally restart and refile. And it's, it's incredibly lengthy and time-consuming, right? It's also expensive. And what people, what, what, hope, what people hope is, oh, well, if we say no to you often enough, you'll just get discouraged and shut up and go away. And what we have to make absolutely clear is that we will not shut up and that we will not go away. Because that is, that is the danger, that people will just become tired, they'll become apathetic, they'll go back to worrying more about, you know, whatever. The, you know, the, the next football game on TV, so don't get me started on the NFL right now. But <laughs> <laughs> That's another show. Right? Yes, it is. Yeah, yeah know, right. The American public, we know, sadly, has, the, has a very short and limited attention span. And so it is very important to those of us who are on the side of right in this to not let this go. You know, one, like, thing, that, one thing that I've noticed uh, about, especially in Charlottesville, in past years, they put hoods on. They're so emboldened now. They're walking down the streets with their faces shown, not caring who knows. Exactly right. And when people say to me, why have they all of a sudden felt that they can do this? I look at them and say they've been emboldened because they believe that they have a firm supporter in the White House. When you have a president who who pardons a racist sheriff from Arizona (laughs) a week after Charlottesville, right? Arpeo has now, um, you know, been, been pardoned. When you have a president who talks about how removing Confederate monuments and, you know, is, is erasing our history. When you have a president who puts people like open avowed racists, like Steve Bannon, who's now gone, but, you know, who he, when he hires people like that to be in his inner council, his personal confidential advisors, to sit, to be one of his, you know, trusted right hands, of course you're going to embolden people around the country who have already felt this way. They felt that they suffered for eight years under the horrible, terrible dictatorship of, you know, the Obama presidency. And now they have one of their own in the White House who's going to give them a pass if they behave this way, who's not going to come down on them, who's not going to arrest them, who has put a man in charge of the Department of Justice who is rolling back all of the protections on civil rights and saying that civil rights infractions will no longer be pursued by the Department of Justice. Of course these people are being emboldened. It's candy land to them. They look around and say, hey, our time has come. Okay, well, uh, Amrita... We're getting the uh, high sign from uh, our producer here, so we are out of time. But in just a few words, uh, can do you want to leave us with anything? I would just say to be very careful to not think that because you live in a place like Bloomington <laughs> that you don't need to worry. Every every city, every town in America has been infected by white supremacy, white privilege, and racism. That is that is one of the legacies of our common history. We must be very on guard, very aware, and you know, very vigilant to make sure that we are unearthing, unrooting, and disposing of any, any root, any shred, any branch of, of white privilege or white supremacy or racism that exists in our communities. Do not tell yourself that you live in a liberal oasis in a little blue dot in a big red sea, because there are an awful lot of big red seas, and even within blue communities, there are red people. Amrita, we want to really thank you, and uh, it was great to talk to you. We hope to see you soon. Uh, We want to thank Bring It On contributor and anchor Amrita Myers, who is a Ruth N. Halls associate professor in the IU Department of History and Gender Studies, to share her perspective on history and heated debates surrounding the Confederate monuments. We hope you enjoyed that broadcast that earned us yet another award from the Society of Professional Journalists. My thanks to everyone who makes Bring It On and WFHB a catalyst for change beginning in South Central Indiana. For Bring It On, I'm Clarence Boone. And I'm Cornelius Wright. We want to also thank Thriving Connections coach Catherine Thompson and Asia Jester for joining us this evening to tell us more about this unique program. For more information, visit www 
inscap.org slash pages slash Thriving Connections or call Katie Thompson at area code 812-339-3447 extension 521. Our show's producer is yours truly, Clarence Boone, with help from the WFHB News Department Director, Wes Martin. Board engineer this evening is Chris Martin. Our original theme music was created by Jamil FM with additional background tracks by David Baker. And for WFHB, I'm Clarence Boone. And I'm Cornelius Wright. Tune in next Monday, May 7th at 6 p.m. for Bring It On, another exciting show right here on your community radio station, WFHB. You've been listening to Bring It On, a volunteer-powered production of Community Radio WFHB in Bloomington, Indiana. Bring It On is your forum for open dialogue on the people, issues, and events affecting the African-American community in South Central Indiana and beyond. Send your comments, suggestions, and story ideas directly to the Bring It On staff. The email address is bringit at wfhb.org. That's bringit at wfhb.org.